0: We're in a study right now of the Book of Revelation. We've made our way to Chapter Eight. So I'd encourage you right now to turn there in your Bibles, if you haven't already. Revelation Chapter Eight. If you need a Bible, one has been provided for you. It should be there in the songbook rack in front of you. And boy, we have uh, we've we've covered a lot of ground to this point. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover to get ourselves out of the Book of Revelation. We've been at it for. Next Sunday will be 52 solid weeks. Uh, We started last Easter Sunday. And to this point, when we come to Revelation chapter 8, we've made our way through the tribulation period for the first time. In chapter 6, what he does for us through the opening of the six seals is he brings us through a period of time that Jesus himself said, there's never been a time like it before it. And he said in something else, There'll never be a time like it after it. The most horrendous period of time, the most horrendous seven-year period known to man. We've been through it one time, but when he came through the six seals, all he was doing, and and, I mean, as we were making our way through, it was just absolutely intense. I, I mean, every week, I mean, we're just seeing unbelievable things as we're coming through, but you've got to understand that in Revelation chapter 6, when he's bringing us through the tribulation period for the first time, all he's doing is just giving us a panoramic view of this thing. He's going to bring us through the tribulation period three more times before we get to Revelation chapter 19. And when we come to chapter 8, we're beginning to go into the tribulation period for the second time. And as we begin to move in this time into more depth, into more specificness, into to more unbelievable judgment being poured out by Almighty God. Look what happens in chapter 8, and verse 1. It said, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And what I'm wanting you to see here this morning is that there is something that is going on in that 30-minute period of silence that would forever change the world. And you've got to see this in light of its contrast. I mean, what we have seen thus far as the church has been raptured out in chapter 4 and verse 1, we've seen that as soon as the church gets there, they begin to enter into the praise and worship that is going on around the throne. But at this point, when he opens this seventh seal, all of a sudden, the 24 elders, they stop playing their harps. They stop singing the song that Revelation chapter 4 says that they sing, that thou art worthy because you are the creator. They stop singing the song that we hear them sing in chapter 5, that thou art worthy because you're the redeemer. We no longer hear the four beasts around the throne singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All of the hosts of heaven go absolutely silent. It's as if they understand what is about to take place on this planet as this seventh seal is opened. John says in verse 2, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Okay, and we know that the things, uh, the, the thing that actually breaks this thirty minutes of silence, is in verses six and seven. It's when these seven angels, which have these seven trumpets, actually begin to sound them. That that's when this judgment is going to be poured out. We've seen it with the seven seals, and now here come the seven trumpets. Verse 3 says, And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings. And an earthquake you see this is where the judgment begins to be poured out the silence as that seventh seal is opened the silence just deafens heaven and it's all as if all of heaven gasp because they understand what is about to be unleashed on this planet as these seven angels begin to sound these seven trumpets now as we were beginning to see last week, there's, there's a major application of these verses that I believe the Lord's wanting us to see as a church that, that applies to us very practically in just our, our everyday living. But, but I told you last week that we were going to spend some time going back to the Old Testament to set this passage for you doctrinally. All the way through our study of the book of Revelation, we've been very meticulous in comparing Scripture with Scripture so that you can go back at any given time if over the rest of your life, and you can compare Scripture with Scripture and know exactly what the book of Revelation is describing for us. And I want to make sure that we do that. Now, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and we're going, to, we're going to pick up in verse 6 when these trumpets begin to sound. We're going to begin to make our move right into the heart of the tribulation period next Sunday morning. I encourage you to have somebody with you next Sunday. But before we we get into the practical application of this passage for us this morning, before we move into the heart of the tribulation, I, I do want to make sure that we've seen exactly what is taking place in these first five verses doctrinally. What John is describing here is what is taking place, of course, in the third heaven. And what is taking place here in the third heaven with all of this incense, the golden altar, the fire, the golden censer, all of these things is something that was pictured for us in the Old Testament tabernacle. And I'd like for you to go back, if you would, in your Bibles, to the book of Exodus, and let's set this to make sure that we understand exactly what is taking place here. Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25, and look with me, if you will, at verse, at verse 1. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. And now drop down to verse 8 and check this out. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Now, I know you haven't, you know, you haven't put the time into studying all of this, but if, if I were just to to give you 15 minutes to just think about the verse that we just read, we'd all just be absolutely tripped out. I mean, can you imagine this? Mortal man making a dwelling place for an almighty, immortal, infinite God. I mean, God making a home... I mean, man making a home for God, I mean, it's just, if you let your mind go on it, it's just a trip. And and God not only allowing it, but check this out, God's desiring it. This was not just man concocted this idea. God actually commanded man to do this. And notice verse 9, that God says, okay, we've just seen, I want you to build it. But now he says, I want you to build it according to... To all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle. Okay, now that's what this dwelling place is actually going to be called. It's going to be called the tabernacle. In fact, this is the, the, the first mention of the word tabernacle in the entire Bible. And what God says, he says, I want you to make this for me. But listen, I want you to make it exactly like I tell you to make it. God says, I'm going I'm to give you the privilege of making this, but I'm going to give you the pattern for that. Now, that's very, very important. Because when Paul talked about this passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8 and verse 5, and he talked about the, the pattern that was used to construct the tabernacle, what Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 8 is that this tabernacle that God told Moses to make was just a a, a crude, earthly, miniature replica of the true tabernacle of God that was in heaven. Now that is so important that you understand that. God says, make me this dwelling place. Let me give you the pattern. We come further in Scripture and we find out the pattern that he used was the pattern of a tabernacle that God says a, is a true tabernacle that is in heaven. And that's the pattern that God gave to Moses for the tabernacle here in verse 9. One that was uh, according to the figure or, or the shadow or the, the, the type of the one that is in heaven. This one on the earth would just be a figure. It would just be a picture of something that was literally in the heavens. And notice at the end of the verse that he also gave Moses in verse 9 the pattern For all of the instruments that would go into this tabernacle. Now the significance of this tabernacle is found in verse 22. Drop down, Exodus 25, look at verse 22 and check this out. God says, And there I will meet with thee. And what you have there, folks, is one of the most incomprehensible truths in all the world that the Holy, Creator, God of the universe has a desire to meet with humans. I mean, just, just ponder that for just a second. It's absolutely unbelievable. And you, and you can see there on your study sheet that, that I've given you a drawing of what this, this tabernacle on the earth would actually look like, and as you might expect... Just like God did everything, it was made up of three parts. You can see there, there's an outer court, and then further in, do you see, there's the holy place, and then beyond that, beyond the veil, was the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, symbolized... The actual dwelling place of God. God says, I want you to make this place for me. I'm going to dwell there. But the specific place where God would dwell would be behind the veil in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, within this tabernacle, and you can see it there on your sheet, there were two separate and distinct altars. First of all, there was the brazen altar. And you see that there in the outer court. It was... That which would have been staring you dead in the face as soon as you walked into the entrance of the tabernacle. And on this altar, on the brazen altar, sometimes called the altar of sacrifice, that was where, of course, the sacrifice was made. And turn over to Exodus 38. Because this is where God gives a description of this brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. Exodus 38. And look at verse 1. And he made the altar of burnt offering of shittim wood. Five cubits was the length thereof and five cubits the breadth thereof. It was four square and three cubits the height thereof. And he made the horns thereof on the four corners of it. The horns thereof were of the same and he overlaid it with brass. He made all the vessels of the altar, the pots, the shovels, and the basins, and the flesh hooks, and the fire pans. all the vessels thereof made he of brass. And he made for the altar a brazen gate of network under the compass thereof beneath, unto the midst of it. And he cast four rings for the four ends of the grate of brass to be places for the staves. And he made the staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with brass. In other words, it's got hooks or circles on the side of it so they could put rods through it so that they could carry it from from place to place. Verse 7, And he put the staves into the rings on the side of the altar to bear it withal, He made the altar hollow with boards. And again, this is the altar where the sacrifice for sin was offered up. And what would take place is the animal would be brought in and laid before God on this brazen altar. It would be sacrificed and its blood would be shed. Of course, symbolizing the fact that God would come to this planet and God would lay himself down and God would on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, mete out the judgment for sin on the cross of Calvary. And so this animal would be sacrificed on that altar. And something interesting, if you check out Leviticus chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, this sacrifice was to be burnt. You don't need to go there now. Leviticus nine twenty-three and 24. This sacrifice, once it had been sacrificed, it was to be burnt. But God didn't want anybody just walking up and applying some fire to it. The thing that would approve this sacrifice was the fact that God would send fire out of heaven and it would ignite the coals that would burn this sacrifice. But as we move further into the temple, you see there on your study sheet, in the holy place, there was another altar. This was the golden altar, the altar of incense and you can you can see it there right before the veil it stood just before the veil that concealed the holy of holies and maybe you can just jot down exodus 40 and verse 5 it gives the location of it exodus 40 and verse 5 the altar of incense was positioned as deep in the sanctuary as the priest could go on a daily basis and only the high priest could go beyond the veil and then Only he could go once a year. But it's positioned as deep into the sanctuary as the priest could go on a daily basis. And turn back to Exodus chapter 30 and see what God has to say here about this altar of incense. Exodus chapter 30. Look at verse 1. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon. Of shittim wood shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, four, scores, uh, four squares shall it be. And two cubits shall be the height thereof, the horns thereof sh- shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. The top thereof, and the sides thereof round about, and the horns thereof, and thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. And two golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it. By the two corners thereof, upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it And they shall be places for the staves to bear it with all. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning, when he dresseth the lamps Ye shall burn incense upon it. When Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering; neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. God says, "Now listen. I want you to. I want you to burn this incense." But don't be bringing any strange incense to burn on there. And there's an exact prescription for it found in the same chapter. Look at verse 34. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee the sweet spices, Sacti and Onica and Galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be a like weight. And thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. In other words, God says, here's the ingredients I want, and give an equal part to each one. This is how we'll make it. This is what this incense is actually going to be composed of. And thou shalt beat, verse 36, some of it very small, and put it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet with thee. It shall be unto you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that to smell thereto shall even be cut off from his people. I want you to understand something. The smell of this incense that God gave them the prescription for, that smell... That composition, that apothecary, if you will, it was so special to God. God wanted to make sure that nobody ever used that for themselves. It was to be solely for Him and Him alone. And as this incense would be burned, and you can just look on your sheet there, you can see where it would be burned, just outside of that veil. The the smoke would carry the sweet, Aroma throughout the holy place and it would pass through the veil or that, that curtain into the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant was. And as it came in, it came into the presence of God and it was a sweet-smelling savor to God. And God, as we saw back in chapter 30 and verse 8, God wanted that fragrance to be continually offered to Him. And, and like we saw last week, the, the burning of incense on the golden altar is a picture of the communion or the, the fellowship that we have with God through prayer. David said in Psalm 141 and verse 2, listen to it, let my prayer be set forth before thee As incense. Back in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, we saw this several months ago. Where it was talking about the 24 elders before the throne. And of course, if you've been here for the study, you know that the 24 elders represent the church as it is before the throne. And it says that every one of them have harps, listen, and golden vials full of odors. It's the same word, full of incense, listen to it which are the prayers of the saints. I mean, God just very specifically, he he leaves it not to our imagination. Now, what do you think that incense represents? He tells us what it is. He tells us it is the prayers of the saints. Incense in the Bible is always connected with the prayers of the saints. And if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, you can already see just through the things that we've been talking about, you can see that there's all kinds of pictures that God was painting for us through these altars in the tabernacle. I mean, look at verse 7 of of chapter 30. Here is Aaron, the priest, and God tells him to burn sweet incense every morning. In the New Testament, we come, and who is the priest? Hello? You guys here? It's you and I, isn't it? Believers in, in Jesus Christ, and what you have here is a picture of believers in Jesus Christ, New Testament priest coming before God every morning, spending time in sweet fellowship, praise, adoration, and worship. And thanksgiving being a, a, a blessing to God. That that time that we spend, he says, it's it's like it's like sweet incense. And he says, burn that thing every morning. And verse 8, it's to be a perpetual thing. It, it's offered fresh every morning, but, but it just continues all through the day. What's the cross reference? It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, isn't it? Praying, how? Without ceasing. It's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1. He said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. And like we saw at the end of of chapter 30, this incense offered on the altar was not to be used for any selfish purpose. And it's what Jesus taught us in the Gospel of John, chapter 14 and verse 13, where Jesus said, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And what we're seeing that God is letting us know here is that New Testament truth that prayer isn't to be used to turn the spotlight on us. It's not a time where we ask God for what we want. It's not a time where we talk to God to serve our own purposes or or ask God to bring glory to us. It is to be used. It is a time that we use to put the spotlight on Him. It's time when we seek to serve His purposes and bring glory to Him. James talked in James chapter 4 about those who use prayer wrongly or people who ask amiss. Why do they ask wrongly? He tells you. Because they ask for things that they may consume upon their own lust. And Jesus constantly taught us that we pray in his name. Not not ours. We're not coming asking what we want. We we come before him in prayer and we're asking what he would ask. We're asking in his Name And listen, any other kind of prayer that we pray, it's strange incense in the nostrils of God. Strange. And we could go on and on with, with the pictures, but I want to make sure that you don't miss the connection between these, these two altars in, in the tabernacle. Like we talked about just a minute ago, the, the sacrifice for sin would be made upon the altar of sacrifice, so that brazen altar. And God would approve that sacrifice by lighting the coals Himself that would consume the sacrifice. Only fire originating from Himself could could truly purify and consume or or approve an uh, an offering. And that was what was taking place at that brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. God himself would light that fire to consume it. But guess where the fire came from that was to light the incense on the golden altar? You know what the scripture says was to take place? The priest was to take some of the coals from under the altar of sacrifice that God himself had lit. And those coals were to be taken the altar of incense and the incense would be lit by the coals that God himself had lit and any other kind of way of lighting that incense to God was what he called strange fire in fact if you check it out in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1 Aaron's two sons Nadab and Abihu They didn't follow the prescribed plan. All they did was just take their own little match book and start that incense. And you know what God did? He sent his fire out of heaven and torched them. Strange fire. Now now check this out. The only coals that could heat the incense to make it a fragrant offering were those on which the blood of the sacrifice for sin had been spilled you know what God's trying to teach us here you know what he's picturing for us through these two altars that until you have experienced atonement for sin at the first altar you can't offer the fragrant incense of prayer and praise and worship at the second altar You know why? Because without experiencing the first altar, without experiencing the blood sacrifice for sin, we have no intercessor. And it becomes strange fire. You see, Frank was talking a few minutes ago about religion and the fact that God hates religion. Do you understand that religion bypasses the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And here are people trying to be religious and they're offering all kind of beautiful, wonderful sounding prayers and God says that stinks. Yeah. That's, that's strange fire. That's strange incense. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 34, listen to it. It says, It is Christ." that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. You see, there's that first altar. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And here's the deal. Jesus Christ died to take away our sins. And three days later, the fire of God's power shined down through the darkness of death, down into that grave as the divine approval that the sacrifice for sin had been paid. And Hebrews 7.25 says that now he liveth to make intercession for us. He died to take away our sins, but folks, he's living so that he can be there. At the throne of God as our intercessor. Placing our incense before the throne of grace on any other basis other than the blood atonement of Jesus Christ is to offer strange fire. Folks, we do not as human beings just bop into the throne room of God and start chit-chatting. It doesn't work that way. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has that right, and He must intercede with our every word before the throne of grace. And once He does, God smells that incense that burns fresh every morning and continues all through the day, and He says, Oh my goodness, that is a blessing. And it applies, folks, not only to to salvation, But this this applies also to the whole process of, of sanctification. You see, only after we have met Christ at the altar of sacrifice are we eligible for petition and praise and worship at the altar of incense. And what this is, is the believer's constant confession of sin. We come before God every morning, and you know what we come before God? Recognizing our sinfulness, God I know that according to 1 John 1-9, if I'll confess my sins, you're faithful and just to cleanse me and, and, and forg- forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And from that point, after coming to the altar of sacrifice, we move to the altar of incense and we begin to praise God. We begin to ask those things that would bring glory to Him. And you know what it is? I mean, we see this pictured for us beautifully. In Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 6, do you remember what happened? Here's Isaiah. He's caught up into the third heaven. He sees the holiness of God, and as soon as he sees the holiness of God, he sees himself, and he confesses his sin. And do you remember what happens? One of the seraphim went to to the altar, and he took one of the coals, and he said, he placed it upon my lips and he says, thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. And folks, you, you see that over and over and over through the word of God as God is teaching us about prayer. The pattern for prayer is that first we deal with our sin and then we move in to offer our petitions and our praise and our worship before him. But like we, we saw at the beginning, this... This whole tabernacle thing was a a picture of something. We saw in the book of Hebrews specifically that the Old Testament tabernacle was a shadow. It was a figure. It was a type or a a picture of a reality that literally exists in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 8, and you can turn back there now, in Revelation chapter 8, what we're actually seeing here is the reality What we have here in Revelation chapter 8, this scene that is taking place is taking place in the third heaven where God dwells. And you see at the end of verse 3, the golden altar. Now we just looked at the replica of it in the tabernacle. What we're seeing here in verse 3 is the real McCoy. But you see, Just like in its earthly representation, you see at the beginning, in the middle of verse 3, this altar in heaven is where the incense was offered. Verse 3 says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And it was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Okay, so this golden altar in heaven is before the throne. And you'll remember that in the tabernacle the golden altar was located right before the Ark of the Covenant. The only thing separating the the golden altar from the Ark of the Covenant was the veil. But you'll notice that in the reality here in heaven, the ark isn't there. And the reason it isn't is because the Ark was just a picture. It was just a shadow or a figure. It was a picture of the throne God, And in heaven, right before the throne, is the altar of incense. Verse 4. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And just like we saw in the picture in the tabernacle, in heaven the prayers of all saints, that's the, the church age saints and the tribulation saints, those prayers are kept in the golden censer, and are burned as incense, and they come up before God as a sweet-smelling savor. And we saw last week, we know what those prayers are because we know what happens on the earth when those prayers are answered. The prayer request of the church-age saints, Jesus told us to pray this. The first request of our prayers is that God would be glorified on this earth by His Son, coming and setting up his kingdom on the earth, that time when his will will be carried out on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer of tribulation saints, we see it in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9 where they are crying out for justice saying, how long O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And in verse 4 of Revelation 8, those prayers ascend up into the nostrils of God as a sweet aroma and as they ascend up those prayers are answered in verse 5 verse 5 says and the angel took the censer see that's where the prayers were being held and filled it with the with fire of the altar and cast it unto the earth and you see here are those prayers now They've ascended to God. God has smelled them. He's put His fire back in that censer. And now those prayers are coming back down to the earth. Those prayers are being answered. And He says, And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. I mean, those prayers arise out of that censer, folks. And, and the Lord fills it with fire. And He hurls that puppy right back down on the earth in answer to the prayer of saints. And when He does... It totally rocks the world. What happens at this point in the book of Revelation is he is preparing this world for his kingdom using the prayers of the saints. He's settling his justice. And the earth is never going to be the same again. And that's why the title of this message is 30 minutes of silence in heaven that changes the world, but that's just the first reason that we've titled it that. I I mean, there's some important connections to make to all of this stuff in the Old Testament. That's why we've taken the last 30 minutes to make sure that you understand exactly what is going on in heaven. It's exactly what was pictured for us back here. And I think it's so important that doctrinally we can make that connection, but there's, there's something else that is just so practical here that I think the Lord Jesus Christ is wanting this church to hear before we move again into this tribulation period, and that is the fact that there is a period of 30 minutes of silence that He is looking for every single one of us to enter into, where we come before Him in prayer. We come before His throne in heaven every morning, offering sweet incense on that altar, just like we saw that Aaron was commanded to do, and for that to become a perpetual thing that continues all through the day. And last week, we, we got to, to this point, and we just began to look over our shoulder as, as a church, and we began to just count our blessings, really to see all the things that God had taught us in in recent years, and we we were able to go through and just see all kinds of things, from making disciples here to making disciples in in literally every corner of the globe, hundreds of people in this church having themselves been on foreign soil, winning people to Christ, building churches, not just the building, but building buildings and filling it with new believers and, and establishing that church on the ministry of discipleship, And we could go through and we could just list all of the glorious, wonderful things that God has taught us. And here we are now, and we're we're studying the Word of God. We've gotten the handles to where we know the principles of the Word of God so that we can go to it ourselves. and, And we're growing, and we're studying, and we're learning. And yet, the thing that catapulted us into this whole dimension of all of these blessings that we're enjoying is the fact that this church... Years ago before we learned all of these glorious things and before we were busy doing all of these things that we're doing, this was a church that had learned what it was to wake up a great while before day like Jesus talked about and learn to offer sweet incense to Him. Just fellowshipping. Just communing with Him. And so we began to just, just talk about the fact that God's wanting us to get back to the place to where that 30 minutes is it's a part of every single day. And it's, it's so significant to us, it's, it would be, for us to miss it, it would be like Aaron not going into that tabernacle every morning and offering that sweet incense so that it may burn perpetually throughout the day. And I'm afraid that, that what has happened to us or what we're in danger of having happening to us, folks, is that we might well come to the place to where we are so busy with all of the things that are going on in this church and so busy studying the Word of God and making sure that we're dotting all of our our, our, our spiritual I's in the right place, and crossing all of our spiritual T's in the right place, that we are, are missing the fact that the God of this universe is wanting to fellowship with us. He's wanting to, as we saw there in Exodus 25, he's wanting to meet with us. So we just began to look at some things that might help us to get ourselves back to the place to where that 30 minutes is, is a priority for us. We talked about the fact that as strange as it is, it's one of the hardest things in the entire Christian life to do. We would much rather witness, we would much rather read our Bible, we'd much rather study our Bible. We'd much rather teach before people. We'd much rather serve. But buddy, there's just some reason. It's just real difficult for us to get to the point to where we actually spend time in prayer. And we began to look at top the top six reasons that Christians don't pray. We're not going to... We, we looked at... Number six, we looked at number five, we won't spend a long time on this, but number six, we don't understand, here's the first reason, or the sixth reason we, we don't pray. Number, number six, we don't understand God's desire to fellowship with us. And, and that's why when we were going through Exodus 25 there, I'm just wanting to remind you again that the God of this universe, He wants to meet with us. I mean, go figure that. He wants to meet with us. He wants to spend time with us. And we saw how in the garden that, that God wanted to walk with man. we saw that up on the mountain, he said to Moses, he said, I, wanna, I just want to be with you, Moses. Ezekiel, out on the plain, he says, I want to talk with you. He, he said in the book of Isaiah, go into your chamber and close the doors because I just want to be alone with you. And then we see in the love relationship between the son of David and his bride in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, where they share intimacy in the field. We see here in Revelation, chapter 8, verse 4, that our prayer, that time that we spend with God, is as incense in his nostrils. And folks, I'm just telling you, If we'd wake up on a daily basis and somehow we could just get ourselves reminded of the fact that the God of this universe is longing to spend time with us, I would just bet you, I just bet you, we'd carve out at least 30 minutes to hang with Him, don't you think? So number six, we don't understand God's desire to fellowship with us. And number five, we don't understand the difficulty of having solitude and silence. As I said, we'd just much rather be serving, 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 going, 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 doing, doing, doing. And yet we saw that as Jesus sent out His twelve disciples, they were out doing all that. They were busy, 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 doing, 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 and going, going, and going. And they come back and they're all stoked about all the wonderful things that they had been able to do. And Jesus said, you know what? We need to get alone. We need to find some solitude. We need to get some silence. And we saw from the book of uh, 1 Kings, the, the fact that there was a wind, there was an earthquake, there was a fire. But the prophet of God says, God wasn't in the wind, and He wasn't in the fire, and He wasn't in the earthquake. But then came a still, Small voice. And folks, I'm just telling you, it's hard to find people in 1998 that are quiet enough to hear the voice of God. And it's real difficult. It's just like with your kids. We talked about with taking a nap. You know they need it, but they resist it like crazy. And we, for some reason, we resist that solitude and that silence. But God knows that we desperately need that time with Him. And then number four. Another reason that we don't pray, folks, is that we don't understand the privilege of direct access to God. We just don't understand. The command of God to Abraham in Genesis 17.1, He told Abraham to walk before me. In Deuteronomy 13.4, He told the children of Israel to walk after me. In Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24, in Genesis chapter 6 and and verse 9, Enoch and Noah, it says, walked with God. I mean, imagine this, walking before God, walking after God, walking with God. But folks, listen, as believers in Jesus Christ, in his church, we have even a closer walk. The book of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. Folks, we're so close to Him, we are actually in Him. We walk before God as children. We walk after God as servants we walk with him as friends but we walk in him as members of his body and what I'm wanting you to see here folks is that he made us his home in 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16 you know what God says listen to it God says I will dwell in them and walk in them. Do you understand this? You now have become the tabernacle of God. You now have become the the temple of God. He has made us His home. God says, I'll dwell in them and I'll walk in them. And then check this out. Not only... Has he made us his home? He has made our home himself. He has made our home himself. The scripture says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 that in him we live and move and have our being. Folks, are you checking that out? God is our home. He is our dwelling place. And I want you to see this. God doesn't want, He doesn't want to be your weekend cabin. He doesn't want to be your summer cottage. He doesn't want to be a little motel room where you just drop by every once in a while when you need a quick little getaway. He is our our dwelling place. Him. And he says that he will be to us in 1 Corinthians 6 or 2 Corinthians 6. He says that he I'll be to you not just a God, but I'll be to you a father. I'll be to you a father. I don't know if you've ever checked this out or not, but you know what God's favorite name is? It's Father. You say, well, how do you know that? Because Jesus used that name to refer to God over 200 times in the Bible. Father. Did you know that the first recorded words of Jesus, most of you know the first recorded words of Satan... But do you know what the first recorded words of Jesus are? It's found in Luke chapter 2, in verse 49. He said, I must be about my Father's business. You know what the last recorded words of Jesus were before his death? Luke 23, verse 46. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. You see it at the beginning, you see it at the end, and all the way through. Father, Father, Father. In the Gospel of John alone, he uses the term to refer to God as Father 156 times. Over and over and over and over in that book he keeps talking about my Father, my Father, my Father, My Father. And I want you to see what he says in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And this, of course, is after his, his death, burial, and, and resurrection. He says in chapter 20, in verse 17... Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. And there's that there's that term that he's used a hundred and fifty-six times in this book. Don't touch me yet, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father. And check it out. And your Father. And your Father. He, he made... Himself, our home. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. We live spiritually in God as our dwelling place, our home. And in that home, you know who He is? He is our Father. He adopted us into his family. Would you go over to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 15. He says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And I don't want to cheapen it, but the only way that we can really understand it is Abba. Is the, it's, it's, a, it's like what babies say. Abba, Papa, Papa. That's the God that we serve, y'all. A God that says, I want to be your dwelling place. I want you to find your home in me. And in this home, you know who I'll be? I'll be your papa. I'll be your, your father. And I will allow you to receive your adoption papers. And, and go over, if you will, to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 and verse 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And I keep emphasizing this word received. Did you notice when He talked about the fact that we were adopted there in Romans chapter 8, He says you've received this He talks about it here in Galatians chapter 4, and he says, do you see this? You've received this adoption. You didn't earn it. You received it. I mean, can you see it? You you come into the the, the adoption agency, okay? Yes, uh, I I would like to to adopt little Billy there, uh, but before I do it, I've got a few questions. Uh, First of all, does he have a house to live in? Uh, Does he have food to eat? Does he have money for for tuition and, and other necessities? Does he have a ride to school? Does he have clothes to wear? No. You don't go in and adopt this kid because of what he has. You go in and adopt him because of what he needs. He needs a home. And you see, folks, that's the way that God saw us he saw us and he knew that we needed a home and he said I'll give you a home it'll be me and and you know what when you come in I'll be to you a father And, and he saw us as orphans to our own sin and he says, I want to adopt him. I want to adopt her. He did it because he saw our need. And you know what? That, that, that's good. Because since we didn't earn it through our unbelievable performance, then we can't lose it because of poor performance, can we? You see, he saw Our need. And he adopted us. And and you know what? I mean, check it out. It it would have been enough if he would have just cleansed our name, wouldn't it? But you know what he did? He gave us his. And I mean, it, it would have been enough if he would have just set us free. But you know what he did? He took us home. He took us home. You know, I, I've, heard, I, I've heard of unplanned pregnancies, but I've never heard of an unplanned adoption. Have you? You know what? This, this was, was calculated. He knew us. He knew all the trouble we'd be. He, he knew all that it was going to cost us. He knew all it was going to cost him. He knew all about our sordid past. And looking at all of that, he came and he signed his name next to ours. And he changed our name to his. And then he took his home. And then he says, Call me. Call me, Father, would you? Abba, we... Could we just have that kind of relationship? You know, it is just so absolutely right for us to approach Him and call Him holy. And it is just so absolutely true when we come before Him and we call Him our King. When we call Him our Lord. But you know what? If you ever want to touch His heart, call Him Father. Because that's what He wants to be to us. And and you know what? When we get to that point where we understand this relationship and the fact that we have access to Him because we're coming home and we have Him as a Father, then all of a sudden prayer probably isn't going to be so dutiful i gotta do this i really don't want to but i i gotta do it (laughs) oh man when you understand that he wants to fellowship with us when you understand that we have that privilege of access to him it's something that that you want to do Let, let let me just ask you before today Do you want to spend time with God? Or are you so busy discipling, so busy studying, so busy planning for the next missions trip that you don't go home and just talk to daddy? There's a third reason that we don't pray. We don't understand the power it unleashes on earth. We don't understand the power it unleashes on earth. Look in chapter 8 of Revelation, verse 5. It says, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar, and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Now, folks, I I don't know exactly how to explain this to you because I don't understand it myself. But somehow it is that the God of this universe takes our prayers and it becomes our prayers that He uses to carry out His work on this earth. Now, I'm just telling you, I don't understand that. Not not even not even for a minute. I do know that the scripture says in James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I don't know how to balance that with the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, and God does whatever he's thinking well pleases. And yet, he stinking well pleases to take our prayers to move on the earth. I'm telling you. I, I don't understand that. I'm just telling you, that's the way that it happens. It, it, turn back just a couple of pages to the book of First John chapter 5. And let's blend this with what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 8, James chapter 5, and look at verse 14. <clears throat> might help if I get in the right book 1st John chapter 5 look at verse 14 and this is the confidence that we have in him that if we if we ask anything according to his will he heareth us and we know and if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. Now check this out: when you speak, when you pray, Jesus hears, and when Jesus hears, according to Revelation 8.5, thunder falls, and when thunder falls, the world is changed. And that's what I'm why I'm, I'm I'm telling you. That 30 minutes that we spend with God in silence, in heaven, coming before Him in prayer, it literally, it changes the world. And and some of us are missing out on it because we just don't pray. When it's the very thing that God is going to use to unleash His power on the earth. Listen, we, we saw this earlier. Jesus died so that our sins could be forgiven. But Hebrews 7.25, he lives to make intercession for us. You know what? To some of us, Jesus is still as good as dead. He might as well still be dead. Because we don't need an intercessor. He liveth to make intercession for us. That's why He is alive and at the right hand of God, so that we can fellowship with God. And we don't use Him. He might as well still be dead and in that tomb. We don't understand, do we? We don't understand the power that it unleashes on the earth. Number two, the second reason we don't pray, we don't understand the spiritual warfare that's taken place above our heads. We don't understand the spiritual warfare taking place above our heads. And and I wish that somehow what God would do is for just... I, I wish He'd let us do it for two seconds. I wish He would let us see the other half of reality that we don't see every single day. And because we don't see it, we think it doesn't exist. But I'm telling you, if for two seconds God would allow you to see the spiritual warfare that you enter into every single day of your life, you know what, nobody would ever have to ever, ever, ever again ever have to talk to you about beginning your day with 30 minutes of solitude and silence before God in prayer. If you could see it, I'm telling you, you'd be so absolutely freaked out of your mind that the only thing that you could do would be to fall before God. And I know some of you don't believe that. In the book of Job, chapter 41, and we don't have the time to prove all of this, but in Job 41, God talks about a creature called Leviathan. We know by comparing Scripture with Scripture who Leviathan is. Who is he, y'all? He he is Satan. In, In fact, he is so well disguised himself that most believers on this planet do not even have a clue that Job 41 is all about the person and the working of Satan. In fact, the most detailed description of the person and working of Satan is in Job 41. Most believers don't even have a clue. And what God tells us there is that one look at Leviathan would cause you, listen, would cause you to literally pass out I mean, if God just for one second, man, opened your eyes to, be, to see your enemy and what's going on above your heads, buddy, you'd literally pass out, and as soon as you woke up, I know what you'd do. You'd roll over on your face before God and say, Oh God, oh God, do I need you. I understand I'm in a warfare. We saw in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is praying, and, and he's looking for the answer to come. And it doesn't come. So he keeps praying, and he's praying, and he's fasting. And the answer doesn't come for three solid weeks, 21 days. Finally, the angel comes down and says, Whew! Wow, man! Thanks for praying, Danny. Because I want you to know something, buddy. It's been wild out there. He says, man, God answered your prayer as soon as you started praying. It's taken me three solid weeks to get here because there's been demonic oppression that's existing right over this nation that's hindered me from getting here. And because you kept praying, and because you've been fasting, you know what God did? He sent Michael down, and Michael's kicking his behind right now, and now I'm down here giving you the answer. And we're praying, Lord bless me today as I go to work. And we wonder. We wonder why we get our behinds kicked every single day. Oh, I'm telling you, if we understood the the warfare, we don't have time to go into Ephesians chapter six, but you know the passage, don't you? It says, We don't wrestle with a flesh and blood enemy we wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual darkness and, and what God keeps saying is you've got to stand you got to stand you've got to stand you've got to stand four times stand, 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 stand you know how you stand? He tells you in the passage get on the whole armor of God you know how you put it on? check it out you put it on prayer some of you are going out there with Leviathan out in your front yard you don't seem you walk out without any armor and you just can't figure out why you just keep getting blasted every single day and oh man I I've, we, we don't have time for me to even show you this, this little deal in Ruth I, maybe, maybe we'll talk about that some other time let me get to the number one reason We don't pray. We don't understand the futility of the arm of the flesh. If you junior hires need help with futility, it means uselessness. We don't understand the uselessness, the futility of the arm of the flesh. Now let me tell you what I'm talking about here. In John chapter 15, in verse 5, Jesus made a monumental statement, y'all. He said this, Without me, ye can do... What's the next word? Nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Romans chapter 17 and verse 18, Paul said, In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. None. None whatsoever. Our problem, the the reason that we can go day after day after day and not spend extended periods of time with God in prayer is we really don't believe that without Him we can do nothing. We think... We can do it in our own power. I'm saved, ain't I? And you are. But every single one of us wake up every single day full of ourselves, full of our flesh. And you know what the flesh will do? The flesh will make you think that nothing is something. We're busy working for God. We're looking at all this stuff we're doing. And we're saying, check that out. Look at all this stuff I'm doing. God says, where is it? I I don't see it. Without me, you can do nothing. We don't need to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is coming to the most crucial period of time in his life. Pastor Frank just masterfully pu- pulled us through this Uh, several Sunday nights uh, ago in in the garden of Gethsemane Jesus is at the most crucial period of time in his life and you got to understand something about this garden you see all of human life began in a garden and it was perfect all of human existence is going to end in a garden that will be perfect sin entered into this garden And to get from this garden that has now been infiltrated by sin to get to this garden that is once again perfect. You see, he's got to walk into this garden. And this garden is the garden of Gethsemane. It's where he goes to battle with his will. He pulls the disciples together and he says, fellas, there's never been a time in my entire life that I've needed you like I need you right now. And I want you to do something for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right over there to pray. And, and when I go, I'm begging you, would you do this for me? Would you pray for me right now? And he goes over and, and he prays and it gets so intense he wants to come back and he... He wants to just fellowship with with these three that are so close to him. He comes back and they're zonked. And he says, hey, fellow, if you would, man, I'd really appreciate it if you'd pray for me. I'm needing you right now like I've never needed you before. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, would you pray? And he goes back he begins to pour his heart out, saying, "Father, not my will, but thine be done." And he comes back, and as he begins to come back, he sees here comes Judas and all of the the soldiers. He wakes him up and he says, "It's cool. It's it's over now. You, you don't need to pray." Here goes Peter, buddy. Pulls out the sword. Takes off the dude's ear. I was down at a church down in North Carolina, I was on vacation last year, a black preacher preaching on this passage, and he says, Now, y'all, Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a marksman with that sword. He wasn't aiming for the dude's ear. He missed. He was aiming for his head. (laughs) And and you know what, what Jesus does? He says, Pete, would you put that stupid thing away? You know what Peter was doing? He was trying to fight a spiritual battle with a fleshly sword. Jesus had asked those men to go to battle for him, where you do spiritual battle, on your face, before God, in prayer. But Peter does what most of us do on a daily basis. I'm going to take care of this thing. I'm going to live the Christian life I'm going to do it my way and we go out in the arm of the flesh trying to do a spiritual work and it doesn't work it just doesn't work oh man I'm telling you the flesh will deceive you it will make you think you're all right, but there ain't nothing of any eternal value taking place there Oh, folks, if we understood the futility of us in our flesh trying to do something for God, I promise you we would fall on our face before God and pour ourselves out in emptiness before him and saying, oh, God, use me as a vessel that you can fill to live your life through me today. I don't want to go in the strength of my flesh. I need you to fill me with your spirit. And folks, I'm, you know what? I, I know, I know the stuff we're talking about is A, B, C stuff. I know it's not like, you know, what we're going to see next week as we're going into the tribulation and blood and fire, you know, and all of this. Yeah, we, we want all that. But this is where it is, folks. This is the nuts and bolts of the Christian life, and you take this element out. You take that 30 minutes of silence and solitude before God every single day. You take that out, and we ain't got jack No power. Nothing of any eternal value. And no relationship. And that's probably the most grievous thing of all to the heart of God. Is he's done all that he's done so that we can have that fellowship with him. And we're just content with a little nod, yay, thanks for my salvation, and help me today. You know what? I really could care absolutely less if we learn the book of Revelation from here on out. I really don't care if you understand the next three times of the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ and the millennial reign. And, you know, I really don't give a flip. Because, you know what? We're going to be raptured out of here and all it's all going to happen just the, exactly the way the book says it's going to happen. I'd much rather we just come to this little passage and let's just clear off a little space and everybody's life get rocked because we're saying, you know what? That's why I'm really here—the fellowship with God. And God, every single morning, as a New Testament priest, just like Aaron, I'm going to come and I'm going to offer sweet incense on that altar that I pray will be a blessing to you and from that period of time all through the day I want to walk in constant fellowship and communion and prayer with you so that this can be a perpetual aroma in your nostrils let's pray And while you as a believer in Christ are praying and talking to the Lord about your walk with Him and your fellowship with Him, could I take just a second to talk to those of you that are here this morning that have never received Jesus Christ. I've been obviously preaching to believers in Christ, but you know what? You would have totally had to zone out this morning to miss the fact that the God of this universe is a personal God. He's not just a a deity that's sitting out there somewhere in, in outer space somewhere, disconnected from humanity. This is a God that has a passion to fellowship with us. But you see, every one of us have a problem, and that is our sin has separated us from God. And God is too holy to bypass our sin, and yet God loves us too much to bypass us. And so God came to this planet, took our sin, so that we could have that relationship with him again. And I want you to know this morning the God of this universe wants to have a personal love relationship with you. But you've got to be willing to come before him. And admit your sinfulness and that there is nothing that you can do to remove that sin apart from what He did for you. And when you call upon His name, the Bible says that He removes our sin from us. He takes up residence in us and we take up residence in Him and He becomes our Father. And He wants to have that kind of relationship with you today. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of people here today that have never trusted you as Savior. May this be the day that they are, they are saved, that they enter into this relationship with you. Speak to their hearts even now. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help us as individual believers in Christ to be all that you've designed us to be in our relationship with you. And, oh God, I pray that from this day forward that there never be a day in our life where we don't come to the altar of incense like Aaron to offer that sweet-smelling fragrance of our prayer and fellowship with you, having first gone to the altar of sacrifice, having our sin removed, and basking in the relationship that is ours with you, may we every single day be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out who we are in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.